Sometimes you hear the question, what's in a name? Many of us are first really confronted with that question when we have to give a name to a little baby and realize, wow, that's going to be with my child the rest of their life. Others have confronted it when we've heard someone else's name and thought, what were they thinking? And it does happen. I, all of these must be true because I found them on the internet. Um, Scottish family with the last name Q that, yes, named their daughter Barbie. And this was 150 years ago, so maybe it meant something else, but this was in England and a little boy whose first name was Burp. More recently, a rather indecisive family that chose three first names for their daughter, Brittany Shakira Beyonce. And then there are apparently 14 people in the United States right now whose first name is Lasagna. And if you're listening, I apologize for the laugh at your expense. When we pick names, we often look for something significant in our life, and uh, perhaps a family name or the name of someone who has been meaningful as we were growing up. Uh, in my own family, my daughter is named for love and for joy because that is a testimony not only of what is, but what we believe is from the Lord. We choose names that have meaning very often. Last week, Pastor Roger told us about Jonah, whose name means dove and probably doesn't have anything to do with peace, but rather the erratic behavior of the prophet. And this week, we are talking about Micah, whose name is so very significant, and we'll find out why in just a minute. But in the meantime, it's important to understand the historical situation in which Micah was ministering. It's a little bit of a shift for us. We have done a lot of our talking about Israel. If you remember, the united kingdom under David and Solomon was then divided into the northern kingdom, whose capital was Samaria, and then the southern kingdom of Judah with the capital of Jerusalem. And a lot of what we have been talking about so far is the northern kingdom. Well, Micah is a prophet to the southern kingdom. Micah is a prophet to Judah during the time that many events were taking place in the north. So this is still, if you've been following with all the dates, this is still the 8th century. This is still the time when the northern kingdom is going through its decline and then is invaded by the Assyrian Empire and is destroyed. The, the powerful nation on the scene is the Assyrian Empire. They are the arch enemy. They are skilled in warfare, and they are skilled in cruelty, and they are hated not only in Israel and Judah, but in all of the surrounding kingdoms as they take over the known world. And so this is a time of, of great tumult in the life of the people. This is a time of battles between the great powers, and as those battles rage, this is a time when the innocent suffer terribly as they are trampled underfoot by these armies passing through one way and the other. The king 
of Judah during this period of time is Ahaz, and Ahaz is one of the most wicked of the kings of Judah. What takes place at the beginning of Micah's work is that because of the threat from Assyria, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, joins forces with the king of uh, Aram, the city of Damascus, and they decide that together they are going to oppose Assyria. But they need more strength, and so they ask Ahaz from Judah to join in their coalition. But Ahaz understands the power of Assyria. He refuses to join in that coalition. In fact, he sends off word to Assyria and says, I will become your vassal. I will become your servant. He sends off all of the riches of the temple in order to buy the favor of Assyria. The kingdom then of, uh, of Israel and of Aram invade because they want to depose Ahaz and put on the throne of Judah someone who will actually join their coalition and fight Assyria against them. And Ahaz, again appealing to Assyria, has them come basically to his rescue. Ahaz needs rescued as they are invaded. He does not turn to the Lord. He turns to Assyria. Assyria comes, absolutely destroys Aram, destroys Damascus, and Ahaz travels up to Damascus to meet the king of Assyria. And while he is there doing his servant role, basically, he sees in a pagan temple in Damascus a very impressive altar. He draws the outline of this altar and sends it back to the high priest in Jerusalem and says, build this altar and put it in the center as the place of sacrifice and push the altar of the Lord off to the side. Ahaz establishes idolatry in the temple in Jerusalem. Ahaz continues to build up what are called the high places. These are the places of idol and pagan worship built on the various mountains, tops, and, the, and literally the high places of the kingdom of Judah. He builds them up and encourages idol worship. Ahaz offers one of his own sons as a sacrifice in fire to the pagan gods. He is wicked, and he has allowed his nation. He has not just allowed, he has led his nation into a descent of wickedness. And in the midst of all this, you have a prophet like Micah who sees the false gods being worshipped all around. But he himself is a living witness because his name is who is like the Lord. My name is who is like the Lord. And of course the answer is there is none like him. There are three very strong understandings of the character and nature of God that come out in the book of Micah. And the first of these is that the Lord judges justly. We are given a familiar scene as we open up the book of Micah. Let's read verses 1 and 2 together. The word of the Lord came to Micah of Morasheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. 
the vision he saw concerning Samaria, that's the capital of the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem, of course, the capital of Judah. Hear you peoples, all of you listen, earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord, from his holy temple. It's a courtroom scene. We have run across the courtroom scene in several of the other minor prophets that we've talked about together. And here, once again, the Lord is calling the peoples into the courtroom as defendants, and he begins to list his accusations. Chapter 3 starts with the same thing, and chapter 6 starts with the same thing. Micah is calling the people into judgment before the Lord. And it's no coincidence that Micah talks about the Lord judging from his holy temple. Isaiah was an older contemporary of Micah. Isaiah began his ministry a little bit before Micah did. If you remember, Isaiah wrote chapter 6 in the year that King Uzziah died. That's the father of the first king under whom Micah served. They knew each other's writings, or at least Micah knew of Isaiah's writings because he refers to it, even quotes, at several points. And of course, you know Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord in his temple, high and lifted up. We're given the description of the heavenly beings encircling the throne who cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Smoke fills the temple. The foundations are shaken. The prophet cries out, woe is me, because he knows he has seen the holiness of God in his temple and he understands his own heart and that he must perish in the presence of the holy God. Well, Micah talks about the Lord from his holy temple, calling the people into judgment before his perfection. And he points out throughout the book the same kinds of sins that we have been talking about for the last month and a half. He calls the people and he calls the leaders to account for their idolatry, for their injustice, for the abuse of the poor and of the weak. He tells them how they have forgotten the Lord and his grace and goodness upon them and that they go about existing as if the Lord is meaningless for them and they follow the other idols. They have forgotten and even presume upon the blessings of the Lord. He calls out their dishonesty. Over and over the sins of the people are listed in contrast to the holiness of God in his temple. And so then Micah pronounces the just retribution of the Lord. And it's not some distant God way high up and holy pronounces retribution that someday somehow is going to be carried out. It is direct and it is powerful. We'll continue in chapter 1 with verse 3. Look, the Lord is coming down from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. Remember the high places? The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. 
All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of his sin, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? The very capital of the city is the place of transgression, Samaria. What is Judah's high place? Its idolatrous place? The very city of Jerusalem. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble. The high place made a heap of rubble a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. The Lord in his holiness descends to the earth and treads upon the mountains in terrible, direct, and powerful retribution. And the judgment is just. It's so important to see throughout the book the direct correspondence between the sin and the judgment. We saw it already in chapter 1, the high places will be made low, will be torn down. The very centers of idolatry will be destroyed. The wages unjustly earned will be lost. You go into chapter 2, and the property that is uh, stolen by abuse is then lost in judgment from the Lord. The people who have done evil have evil returned upon them. In chapter 3, the prophets who instead of speaking the word of the Lord, speak what is going to be pleasing to the people so that they can gain profit. The prophets receive no revelation. This pattern continues throughout the book as those who eat and who store up and who plant are never satisfied and are unable to save and never see the harvest. The consequences, the judgment directly corresponds to the sin of the people. This is why the judgment is just. And that's not just some Old Testament Micah principle. Paul tells us in the book of Romans, chapters 1 and 2, that the wrath of God is being stored up in heaven, and it will be poured out. And in chapter 2, he says, each one will receive according to what they have done. And you know what? We need that. We need to understand that. We live in an awful day. Every day we look at the news, there's so much wickedness. Evil people doing evil things and innocent people being trampled underfoot. I don't have it in my notes. Just a second. Micah 3. (laughs) You leaders, this is the Lord speaking to the leaders. You leaders who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh and strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Our world grinds people up. It's unjust. It's horrible. 
It wrenches our soul to read the news and to see it take place. And we cry out, will there be justice? How long? Like the souls of of the martyrs in Revelation chapter 6. How long, O Lord? How long until you pronounce judgment? How long until your vengeance is seen? The day is coming. And we need that. We need to know that the horrible things that we have seen throughout history and that continue up to this day will not go unpunished. But we also need to understand, like Micah, that the judgment is completely and personally devastating. It's not just for those wicked people out there. Let's continue to read in chapter 1, picking up with verse 8. This is Micah. Because of this I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For Samaria's plague is incurable. It has spread to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Beth Ophrah, roll in the dust. Ophrah sounds like dust. So in the city of dust, roll in the dust. Pass by naked and shame, you who live in Shafir. Shafir means adorned in beauty. Well, naked and in shame. Those who live in Zainan will not come out. Zainan means come out, but there's no escape. There's no way to get out of Zainan. Beth Ezel is in mourning. It no longer protects you. Those who live in Marath, which means bitter, writhe in pain, waiting for relief because the disaster has come from the Lord even to the gate of Jerusalem, from Samaria to Jerusalem. Shave your head in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourself as bald as the vulture. Don't know why he had to say that. For they will go from you into exile. And then skipping to chapter 3. Therefore, because of you, Zion, the city of God, will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. Completely devastating. But again, not some far-off understanding. This is personal for the prophet and for the people. We heard those play on, plays on words that Micah used as he was describing these cities and their destruction, and maybe we think, oh, that's cute, or oh, that's interesting. But the point of that is to bring the concept of judgment from somewhere out there to home. These are the places that are near and dear. These are the things that I love. And these are the things that are being painted with words of of destruction, of doom and dread and despair. It's kind of like if he said, carry will be carried off. Apex will be reduced to rubble. Holly Springs dried up and parched like a desert. The lilies of Lillington torn up and trampled underfoot. 
These are the people that Micah knows, the people that he loves. He mentions his own city in this context, and he grieves because of how horrible the suffering will be. Just retribution is coming directly from the Lord, corresponding to the wickedness of the people and completely and personally devastating. That's who the Lord is, Micah proclaims. And he says to us where we are, that justice that you long for is coming, but be wary of your own soul. It's good that he doesn't end there. Another thing that we see, or another way that Micah answers the question, who is like the Lord, is that our Lord is the one who shows mercy. And oh, how we long for and need his mercy. There's three different, I guess, time frames in which this mercy is seen in the life of Micah. One of them is just so remarkable if you put the history together with the book, and that is that in Micah's life, we see God's mercy immediately demonstrated to those who respond in repentance. An immediate show of mercy to those who respond in repentance. Here's what I mean. Let's go back to that story, this historical situation in which Micah is prophesying. Assyria has come and invaded Damascus, then continues down and absolutely devastates Samaria. The kingdom of Israel is destroyed. A three-year siege. The Assyrians are excellent with their siege works. A three-year siege, and then, then Samaria is torn down, broken apart, and whoever is not killed is carried off in exile, never to return. Ahaz continues in his servitude towards Assyria, but when he passes, his son Hezekiah comes to the throne in Judah. And Hezekiah is one of the best kings that Judah has ever seen. Hezekiah brings about reform in every area of life. He tears down the high places. He breaks up the idols and destroys them. He cleanses the temple. He reintroduces worship according to the law of the Lord. He leads the people in following the Lord. And he rejects the support of Assyria. He is going to depend upon the Lord. Well, as you can imagine, the king of Assyria isn't very happy about that. And so again, invasion just about every fortified city of Judah is destroyed, as was described in this passage. And the army comes and surrounds Jerusalem. And Hezekiah is still trying to trust in the Lord. And the commander of that army that is surrounding Jerusalem proclaims in the hearing of all the people, you better give up. 
because nobody stands against the army of Assyria. And he actually says, do you think you can trust your God? Has the God of any of these other nations saved them? What difference is your God from them? Their gods couldn't save, your God can't save either. And Isaiah is there with Hezekiah, and he says, don't listen to him. Trust the Lord who will deliver you. And the angel of the Lord comes and destroys 185,000 of those warriors of Assyria. And the people wake up and the army is gone. And for a hundred years, actually over a hundred years, Judah is, is basically free of the threat of Assyria as that nation declines, but then eventually Babylon takes control. And the key point here, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 26, let me give you a little bit of the background before we actually read the verses. So this is 120 years later, something like that. Jeremiah is prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem again. And the people want to kill Jeremiah because he's saying Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. But the elders of the city, some of the people who know history and remember and they look back, Jeremiah 26, 17, some of the elders of the land stepped forward and said to the entire assembly of people, Micah, remember Micah of Morasheth? He prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. He told all the people of Judah, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, or anyone else put Micah to death? Did not Hezekiah fear the Lord and seek his favor? And did not the Lord relent so that he did not bring the disaster he had pronounced against him? Micah can be numbered among one of the successful prophets. He proclaimed the Lord's judgment, and the king and the people responded in repentance, and the Lord relented and delivered the city powerfully. God responds to repentance. And when our souls are called to account, I mean here and now, not the day of judgment when it's too late. When our souls are called to account is the moment when we can turn to Him with a cry of repentance and He will respond with mercy because that's who the Lord is and that's what the Lord always does. It doesn't matter how deep the wickedness is. It doesn't matter how far I think I've fallen, how hopeless I think my case is. God has mercy and powerfully delivers everyone who falls on Him in repentance. How glorious is that Lord that Micah proclaims. We also see mercy in the book of Micah in the near future. So the immediate mercy is when Hezekiah leads the people in repentance. But we do know that 140 years later, 
because of the wickedness of Manasseh and the other kings, Jerusalem is torn down and the people are carried off in exile. Micah has prophesied that. He knows that it's going to take place, but he also says that the Lord will bring back the remnant. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I will surely gather you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way, that's breaking open the way out of captivity, will go up before him, and they will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. This is a shepherd king who leads the people out of captivity and to return, which, as we understand, takes place. And the city's rebuilt, and the temple is rebuilt because the Lord is a merciful God. There's one other way that we see God's mercy in Micah, and that is actually mercy that is shown to us in Jesus Christ. Micah chapter 5 is one of those famous Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. You remember last week, Roger said, I can't wait to get to December because I can talk about Jesus and Jonah. Well, we're going to talk about Jesus in Micah in December, the, the, the prophecy, but you, Bethlehem, are not least because out of you will come one. It's talking about Jesus. And in Micah chapter 5, we will... We will read together 5 verses 3 and 4. We read about Jesus. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He, the one who is born, will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. So finally we understand what's the source of that mercy, and it is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the shepherd that we already talked about today, the shepherd who came to save the sheep, the shepherd who came to lead the sheep, and as Jesus reminds us, the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The only reason that that mercy is available in Jesus Christ is because Jesus Christ laid down his life. God does not abandon his justice in order to show us mercy. God is just and God is merciful. And the way that he can do that is that his justice was poured out on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ took that retribution that we deserve for every one of our sins. Jesus Christ bore upon himself the full measure of that direct and powerful wrath of the holy God who tramples the mountains. Jesus Christ took everything that we deserve in order that we could be the objects of God's mercy. And so everyone who follows Jesus, like sheep follow a shepherd, everyone who places their faith in Christ 
and who walks after him becomes an object not of wrath, but an object of mercy. So who is like the Lord, who is just and who is merciful? And then finally, who is like the Lord who maintains covenant love? Micah paints a picture of certain hope for us that is based in God's character. Please think about that for a minute. Certain hope that is based on God's character because God keeps His promises. When we talk about covenant love, we're simply talking about a God who makes promises and who keeps His promises. And He promised Abraham, and He promised Moses, and He promised David blessings for all nations through His people. And God will follow through on those promises. Let's read together from the very end of the book. And here is where Micah actually asks the question that is his name. Micah 7:18. Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors long ago. God makes promises and he keeps them. And so we can trust him in the very worst of times. Micah looks around him and the culture is decaying. The country is falling apart. The powers are raging. The people are suffering. But he knows that God keeps his promises. And in the midst of all that, he's able to say, who is a God like you? Let's read a little bit more about those promises that God keeps. This is in chapter 4, but it's also referring to God's future fulfillment of all of the promises that He has made. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of mountains. Okay, follow that. Jerusalem is a high place, a wretched place of idolatry. Jerusalem is torn down like rubble. That's the end of chapter 3, the very first words of chapter 4. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will again be lifted up, exalted above the hills. And the peoples, that's the nations, the nations will stream to it. So that's the second promise, God reestablishing the temple, God bringing the nations to himself. Later on they say, verse 2, the nations will come and say, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
And so God promises that great throng that we described in Revelation, worshiping before the throne, that's the nations who come and say, let's learn about the Lord. Let's walk in the ways of the Lord. Let's worship the Lord. Micah continues, He will judge between peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. And when the Lord will rule in justice, in justice, and settle the disputes of the nation, here's the result. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Can we read the news and long for that day when Jesus reigns in justice and in power? And when the measure of a nation is no longer taken in its weapons of destruction? As one commentator said, if the rationale for war is safety, it will be undercut once and for all. All the violence will be removed. As we sit under the reign of the Prince of Peace. And then verse 4, everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. Universal blessing is ahead for all of those on whom God pours out His mercy. Here's another one I didn't ask to be put up on the screen. <laughs> Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. The sea is a place of fear, of the unknown. No longer any fear. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You can bank on it, because God keeps his promises. That's what's ahead for us. Because the Lord is a God of covenant love. At the end of Revelation, John cries out, Maranatha. That means, come, Lord Jesus. We long for that day. Come, Lord Jesus. Bring your justice, bring your mercy, bring your covenant love. And if God is on our side, then we can respond like Micah responded in his day. Micah spoke the truth, even when it was unpopular. Micah 3.8, I've lost all my verses, here we are. 
But as for me, this is Micah speaking. So Micah has grieved and mourned, but now Micah, filled with power and with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and might, speaks, declares to Jacob his transgression, declares to Israel his sin. Micah can't do that on his own, but he knows the Lord, and so he can speak with power. And we have the word of the Lord that we can speak with power. They wanted to kill Micah. They wanted him to shut up. They wanted him to go away. But he refused to stop speaking because he was speaking in the power of the Lord. We can follow Micah's example, not because we are strong in ourselves, but because God is on our side. We can live as citizens of his kingdom. Micah 6.8 is probably one of the most famous verses in Micah. The Lord speaking to Micah. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. When everything's in decay around us, we don't know what to do. We feel like i got to solve the problems of the world. And God says, Micah, mortal, Tom, Jamie, (laughs) do justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. Live as a citizen of his kingdom even while you are a citizen of an earthly kingdom. And we can do it because we have the Lord. We have the God of justice and of mercy and covenant love on our side. And then hope. Like John who cried out, come Lord Jesus, hope as the children of the promise. I love Micah 7.7. As for me, everything's fallen apart around me. Micah says, as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. We experience in our lives, day in and day out, so much turmoil, so much loss. There, there is grief and there is confusion. There is dismay at what's taking place in our world. Micah says, wait for God. Put your hope in the Lord because he is the one who keeps his promises. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, who is like you? No one. All of those false gods of the nations and the false gods in our lives, the things that we fear or the things that we pursue, the things that enslave us, those false gods are nothing compared to you. And just like Micah promised when Jesus comes that he will remove the idolatry and he will remove the sin. 
Would you do that work in our lives? We today come to you asking for mercy, longing for you to fulfill your promises to us in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray this morning for the one who might just be about out of hope, might be ready to be overwhelmed with despair, for whom the, the news of the nations is confusing and overwhelming and distressing. God, fill us with a vision of your glory. Help us to look to you. You will do justly. You are the God who loves mercy. You'll keep all of your promises. Just give us the strength to trust in you and to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.